Christ is risen. risen Good morning. We have just a couple of two uh, church fathers left in this section before we'll go and I think we'll be uh, reading and studying first Peter when we get done with this this chapter. So we just have uh, St. Augustine and John Chrysostom today. Um, But before we do that, uh, any comments, anything or questions that you have? jump in. What was the gist of um, your last weekend? Last weekend I was, so I presented uh, for a return to Wittenberg conference. Basically, uh, I could say, uh, you already heard the first version of, of what, I, what I spoke on. It was my, ser- my sermon from Trinity Sunday this past year. I kind of expanded into a presentation. Basically on uh, the Christian in the presence of God uh, in divine worship and how we understand that and kind of compared that to uh, the first three commandments that we worship God according to these first three commandments by uh, treating God as God when we come into his presence. If, if God is God and we're meeting him, then we act like we're meeting God and we treat God like God. So instead of worshiping an idol, we are going to, in fact, worship this God who is present. That affects how we do that. And we see that in Isaiah. That was the text um, that I was preaching on. Um, and then the second commandment being the name of God. And so uh, in that text in Isaiah 6, calls on the, the, the angels, the Lord, the God of hosts, um, that we would call upon God's name. That God's name is the central, that's the organizing principle for the whole liturgy. It is basically taking the name of God, which is everything that God is, and he gives, and it's applied to us, and it's I. In, in, the, in the, the liturgy, we're in the whole church service, we're swimming uh, kind of in the name of God. Um, and then the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day by, holy, by making it holy, keeping it holy, that um, we, the whole thing, the whole worship of God is to be rest. God does the work of, of saving us, and we rest in the forgiveness of sin. Um, and just kind of seeing that as the framework for, you know, how do we understand what we do? And particularly because, so the Bible doesn't give us, like in the Old Testament, gives very specific prescriptions of how we're supposed to do it. Right? The New Testament doesn't do that specifically. But the first three commandments are still in play. And so whenever we approach how we, how we do that, we keep those first three commandments. That we treat God like God, and that we honor his name, his name throughout his life. The, word, the whole service is centered on the word of God, the name, and that we would rest, receive our Sabbath. So that was kind of the gist. And then I, on Sunday morning, preached, and I just preached on the 22nd Sunday. Sunday was last week, um, on, the, on, the, on the Sunday's gospel, and presided at the service um, there in Sparta. Great little old church. Um, in Sparta, it's about Ridgeville, outside of Toma. Um, really being a country church in the middle of nowhere. Beautiful. All right. Um, so, St. Augustine. I think, yep, we got uh, Augustine of Hippo. Um, probably one of the most frequently cited, uh, most familiar of, of church fathers. 
of this, this period, I'll just comment on the sometimes people will translate Augustine, I think, um, like the, the city in Florida, St. Augustine, or the kind of grass or something like that. That's kind of a, uh, like an Americanized, I think. Uh, I've always pronounced it Augustine. Probably that's more of a German way of saying it. That's probably the um, less, less American way. Um, uh, St. Augustine is quoted. So if you remember, Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk of the Augustinian order of, um, of friars. Uh, and so, which wasn't founded by Augustine, but it kind of is in his uh, an Augustinian tradition. Um, and and the, the Lutheran church picked up on, on some of that and recognizing him as a, as a um, significant figure in church history prior, long time prior to the Reformation. Uh, so in the Book of Concord, for example, in our Lutheran Confessions, uh, Augustine is cited or mentioned like some 20 to 30 times. It's regular. It's actually the first quote on the sheet um, is, reflects that. And this is from the Augsburg Confession. And, and it says, uh, and this is in the context of the article on priestly celibacy. And the, the quote says, Augustine's authority should not be taken lightly, even though some wish, this a typo, it should be wish, some wish to do so today. Um, so what he had said in, this, in the section right before this was there was a quote that, that Augustine said that uh, clergy who got married uh, when the, the rule comes about priestly celibacy, uh, that their marriages were not to be dissolved. You know, that which was happening. Sometimes someone would, if um, either someone before or while they were a, a priest or a pastor, they got married, and then they then later on said, no, priests can't be married, they would dissolve marriages. Or if someone wanted to take vows, they would dis they would get divorced so that they could become a monk or, or, or a, a priest or something like that. And he said, no, they weren't to be dissolved, what were lawful marriages. Um, and and what, so I think it's useful for, or interesting for us to this line about Augustine, that Augustine has some authority. He's a teacher of the church. That does not mean that everything that Augustine says, we've said this before with other church fathers, not everything that they say is correct. They're not infallible. This isn't the, their writings are not the scriptures any more than Luther's were, or even or even even mine are, or something like that. Um, uh, fathers can can err, but yet they do have authority. There is an authority there, and so this Augustine's authority should not be taken lightly. That it's, and I think this is the way we would want to treat all of these things. We do not dismiss these things that are written to us by, whether that's church fathers or that could go all the way up to preachers in the present time, that we don't dismiss them light and treat them lightly as if we can just, well, oh, no, that, I, I, just don't, I just don't buy that. We would have to show them how they're wrong in order for us to dismiss it. Yeah, if we want to you know, say, well, Augustine, there were, th were things that were wrong in Augustine's teaching. Uh, like, I think, I think I had read, is it, Double predestination, maybe. Maybe that might have been someone else. That might have been Chrysostom. But, you know, you, you can find things in their writings that are, that are incorrect. But we would 
we would address that with the scriptures. We can't just dismiss them. And, like, and I think a, a challenge or a temptation tendency today would be to dismiss some of these church fathers because, oh, that's way back in the 300s. That's very old. Like, just dismiss them because they're old, as if they'd have nothing to say to us today. That's kind of a chronological snobbery that we might have to dismiss something just because it's the, an old they or they didn't, you know, that they they were unenlightened. We now know all things. Um, so we, we I, th I think that's useful. His authority should not be taken lightly, though so much stupidness today. Um, he was not born in, uh, in a Christian early. Uh, his his mother was. Christian, but I think she had fallen into Manichaeanism, which is one of those uh, heresies, uh, a Christian heresy. So they were, it's kind of a sort of a, a, a religion with a light Christian veneer on it. It was Christian ish. Um, uh, Man, Manichaean, Manny was, um, was probably not a Christian. Um, he, he even, uh, the, the guy who started that thing, Manny, Claimed to be the the pair, like the promised Holy Spirit kind of. Um, he, he claimed that that was that was him, um, and I think that's I think his mother was part of that. His father was a pagan, um, but he uh, he was educated. He was a court orator and was in Milan. Um, when he heard Ambrose, we talked about Ambrose, Saint Ambrose. He heard him preach. He went to actually go listen to him preach. Uh, people said that Ambrose was the greatest orator. And so he went to, he was curious to go and find out. Uh, if you remember me telling you about uh, Ambrose, uh, Augustine saw Ambrose and he was like pray, or reading with, without speaking out loud and thought that was weird. Yeah. Um, but was converted to Christian Christianity. Uh, 387 was when he was baptized. Uh, the, the story goes that when he was in Milan, uh, he had seen like a vision of a child who set, like, had a book and said to him, take up and read. And he took up and read and he read this section from Romans and, um, and a, a story about how, how his conversion went down. Uh, but his, his baptism, he was baptized by Ambrose in Milan 387 at the Easter Vigil. So you know the context, we've done the Easter Vigil, the context of that in the early church was this was the culmination of, of instruction for catechumens. And on the night of Easter, they would be baptized and then later receive their first communion. But that, the Easter Vigil was big in that, and uh, Augustine was part of that in 387 um, at the Easter Vigil. That supposedly... The Te Deum Laudamus, the song, uh, hymn of praise from Matins, supposedly that was written by Ambrose on the occasion of Augustine's baptism. I, I don't know if that can be verified, like historically or not, but that's that's what they usually say. All right. Um, yeah, and then then eventually so he becomes the bishop. He's from uh, Northern Africa, so modern day Algeria. So if you're looking at Africa, you've got Egypt kind of here, and then the, the, the coast, the Mediterranean coast of Africa, um, Algeria, that's where the, the city of Hippo is. 
And uh, he's from that area and then later on becomes the Bishop of Hippo. His writings, um, we're going to have some, some selections, but his main one that he's most known for are his confessions, Augustine's confessions, uh, which is like this super long prayer um, where he meditates on how he comes to faith and, and on the faith that he's been, been given. Uh, it goes back and he looks at his life to this point. Early on, his life was not so pious. I mean, he was not a Christian. And so he was, um, and he describes this, we'll see this in a little bit. Um, he had a, a girl, not quite a, maybe like a mistress, maybe a kind of a concubine, this woman that he had and that wasn't married to her, had a child with her. Um, the child is, I think, baptized with him when he's baptized. Um, but then later on, they end up sending the woman and the, because his mother, oh no, this is before he becomes a Christian. His mother's are going to arrange a marriage for him. <clears throat> Um, from someone higher up in society. So he sends away this other woman that he had been with uh, so that he could secure this other, other marriage. But then that didn't go. He decides not to, to marry. Um, he dies finally at uh, 430 uh, when the, the Vandals uh, siege uh, Hippo. Uh, later on, they attack the, the, the kind of the end of the Roman Empire. These, these Germanic tribes come and uh, takeovers so of the Vandals had uh, seized Hippo during that in 430. When they find his room, um, after, when, when he dies, in his room written on the walls are the seven penitential psalms. He spent his time kind of in hiding, <laughs> writing the psalms on the walls. Uh, so a number of quotes that we have showing a various, uh, various things. So the second one is from the Apology of the Augsburg Confession on Original Sin. Where uh, Augustine says, sin is forgiven in baptism, not in such a way that it no longer, another typo, sorry, no longer exists, but so that it was not charged. So in baptism, sin is not removed. It doesn't, it, it's not like it doesn't exist anymore, but it's no longer charged to your account. It's no longer punished. So sin remove, baptism removes sin, that is, it forgives it. That's just a, an example of a clear teaching from the, the church fathers on a topic here, in this case, on baptism and an original sin. Um, in the Apology also, uh, he has this quote, God leads us to eternal life, not by our own merits, but according to his mercy. Uh, that we are saved by grace, by mercy, not by our own works. So, again, there's the, the Lutherans in the Reformation saying, look, see, this is not a new teaching. This is what St. Augustine taught. We're not making this up. You know, the, 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 the doctrine that we're opposing is the one that changed. Yeah? The addition of merit by works. And, okay? Um, on, in the large catechism, uh, uh, here's Augustine's definition of a sacrament. It says, when the word is joined to the element or natural substance, it becomes a sacrament. You have these two things, and this is... These two things in the sacrament. You have the word of God, and then you've got the element. And then when they're put together, that's what makes it a sacrament. Pastor, back yeah. to the baptism, he was, what, 33 years old? Didn't he and his mother kind of believe that, get your sin out of the way because once you're baptized then? And are there some, and it, maybe that's correct or not incorrect, but are there some, there's some religions that just wait for baptism until they're an adult? Yeah. And are they kind of threaded together a little bit? Um, they, they do the same thing, but I think for a different reason. So the, 
the, there's, this was a common thing. I don't know that that was the case in Augustine's case because he, when he was converted for shortly after he was baptized, but there was that, that was a train of thought in the early church uh, in this time period included that people would put off baptism, not. Uh, well, they would do that, yes, because they had perhaps a wrong idea that sin committed after baptism needed a different way of forgiveness, or maybe even wasn't possible, um, and so they kind of wait so that you could get all as many sins forgiven as possible when the baptism. Of course, we understand that that's not the way it works, um, that baptism, the forgiveness of sins, includes all sin, including that which we will we'll do. It's not like a, okay, we got you clean so far, now if you stay clean, and you'll be all right. I mean, that would just be as legalistic as if we just, right? Um, the, the more modern idea of putting off baptism until like an age of discretion, so not baptizing infants, is not so much that as that is a misunderstanding of what baptism is and that it's an it's a intellectual like assent that is required in order for it to be valid. Yeah. So they'll sometimes say, testifying or something with your will. So it's kind of like yeah. a person coming to their will. So, so in, in one way you could say that to, in that, that case people put off baptism until like, you know, they do. Because they, because they believe baptism is lesser, does less. Um, well, it's, it's still kind of the same thing. When they put it off until later on in life so they um, get the most out of it, it, it's not because they don't think baptism forgives sins but just because they think that it only does the forgiveness of sins up to that point. That's important. Yeah, it's also part of our sinful nature thinking we're a part of it. Something we do is going to make yeah. it happen, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, in, in this case, I think it's, it's shortly after his conversion that he's baptized. Because I think it was, I, oh, when did he see, there's a little timeline of Dustin's life in this book. I haven't read this yet. I, it, just, it just came to the top of my pile so that I'm just starting it now. I've read, or familiar with parts of it. Um, so what, what did I say? Baptism in 387. Um, he only met, he was only, he only knew um, Ambrose. I think he only came to Milan in 385. Um, yeah, it's kind. Of, it's it's uh, February. Let's see, read some of Saint John's Saint Paul's epistles in three eighty six, a few days before August twenty third. Um, it's it's really in that last three eighty six to three eighty seven, that that fall, winter, spring, that he really kind of comes to faith. Seems like so. Just in those, so it's only a couple. Um, so this next long section, and we won't read all of it, uh, is from his, his Augustine's Confessions. Uh, the first one, though, this is the very beginning of it, and this is probably the most quoted line, or it's when people think of St. Augustine's Confessions, uh, this line at the end of the first paragraph. So he starts off, Thou art great, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Um, but it's amazing to me just how familiar already this is. He writes this maybe ten, five years six years after he becomes a Christian. But just look how familiar he already is with the Psalms. Um, kind of impressive. Thy power is great and thy wisdom there is no number. To praise thee is the wish of man, 
who is but a part of thy creation, man who carries about with him his own mortality, who carries about the evidence of his sin and the evidence that thou resisteth the proud. And yet to praise thee is the wish of man who is but a part of thy creation. Thou dost bestir him so that he takes delight in praising thee. For thou hast made for us for thee, and our heart is restless till it finds its rest in thee. That line right there is very commonly cited above. St. Joseph Our hearts are restless. We're, we're made for communion with God, and, and until we are in communion with God, he says, our, it describes that our heart is restless till it finds its, its rest in thee. There's sort of a, a, a longing for God that God has implanted in, in mankind. Um, not everybody receives it, but... Um, but that's what come up. I think I'll skip over it. Then it, I mean, you, you should read it on your own. It's good. Um, but you can see how it's just like extended prayer. <laughs> it's a, 300 pages of, of this. Um, but go down to the bottom of the page, 130. This is where he's kind of reflecting on his early life um, when he's a boy. He says, What was more filthy in thy sight than I as a boy? When I would even displease such men, adults with questionable values, by telling countless lies to the servant in charge of me, to my teachers, to my parents, moved by the love of games, fondness for the sight of the frivolous shows, and by the disturbing pro- process of imitating public spectacles, like imitating public spectacles, could include things like, like gladiator games and the circus where, you know, the, the execution of Christians, like he... They, it's kind of fun. Uh, I also stole from my parents' cellar and table, either impelled by gluttony or in order to have something to give the boys who gave me in exchange the privilege of playing their game. <laughs> I just steal stuff so that I'd have something to bribe my friends with. Um, in which they certainly took a pleasure equal to mine, yet nonetheless sold it. <clears throat> Even in this play, I frequently tried to win deceptive victories because I was overcome by a vain desire for preeminence. What was I so unwilling to tolerate? And what did I argue about so fiercely if I caught others doing it, except the same, like, I did the thing, but then when someone else did it, I argued against them so harshly, except the same thing which I was doing to them. And if I myself was caught and shown to be guilty, I preferred to fight rather than to give way. So he's describing, like, his sinful nature, and that he could see that in himself as a child, but not when he was a child, but now, looking back, he can see even, like even this, like my play, I was pretty rotten. Um, is this the innocence of childhood? It is not, Lord. It is not, O oh my God. These are the very things which pass from pedagogues and teachers, and from the nuts and balls and birds of childish sport. So, like, it, what this comes from from somewhere? How, you know, where did they learn this? Um, but then, but then it go. It starts. What starts in these kind of sinful things while playing? It says what starts um, nuts and balls and birds of childish sport to governors and kings to gold estates and slaves. Now our sins have higher stakes. As adults, as you know, these very things pass in sequence with the successive years of growth to maturity, even as greater penalties take the place of the teacher's rod. Greater consequence, too, for, for, for sins. I wanted to steal, 2.4. I wanted to steal, and I did it compelled by no want, 
unless it be by my lack of justice and disgust there and my plentitude of iniquity. Like, I wanted to steal, but I didn't need to. I didn't, he talks about, well, he's going to come to that. For I stole what I already possessed in abundance and of much better quality. Nor did I desire to enjoy the thing itself, which was the object of my inclination to steal. But the very act of stealing, sin itself. There was a pear tree near our vineyard, which was laden with fruit that was, ne- that was attractive neither in appearance nor in taste. In the dead of night, we, for we had prolonged our playing in the vacant lots, according to our usual unhealthy custom. Until then, we crept up to it, a gang of youthful good-for-nothings, to shake it down and despoil it. We carried away huge loads, not as a treat for ourselves, but just to throw to the pigs. Of course, we did eat a few, but we did so only to be doing something which would be pleasant because forbidden. <laughs> Look at my heart, O God. Look at my heart, which thou hast pitied in the depths of the abyss. Look at my heart. May it tell thee now what it sought in this, that I might be evil without any compensation, and that there, for my evil there might be no reason except evil. Like, why was I so evil? Because I was evil. <laughs> like, that was the reason itself. Why did I do these things? Because they were wrong. <laughs> That's why I did them. Um, uh, that for my evil, there might be no reason except evil. I was filthy. It was filthy, and I loved it. I loved my own destruction. I loved my own fault, not the object to which I directed my faulty action, but my fault itself was what I loved. My vile soul, down from thy support without extinction, not shamefully coveting anything, but coveting shame itself. So here's you know older man, uh, Augustine as a Christian, looking back on his early years and seeing what was what was his original his sinful nature and of course he goes on from there in the confessions and see then how god by grace has rescued us from this and so even this our, our what needs to be saved then our whole being and so it's not just you know forgive me a couple wrong things that i did what was wrong me <laughs> it was my sinful self my whole the whole thing needs saving um and and so uh so that's that's a, a clip of his confessions another of his uh, books is on christian doctrine uh and this this next one comes from that since you cannot do good to all you are to pay special attention to those who by the ac- accidents of time or place or circumstances are brought into closer connection with you. What would we call someone like that? Someone who's brought into by, whether by circumstance, time, place, is brought near to us, we call that a neighbor. Right? And so he says, can't, can't do good to all. You've got all these people and it would be overwhelming for us. We could not help um, everyone in the same way. And so... Who does Jesus call us to, or are we called to, to serve? It's the ones that, are, that come near to us. Yeah. By, by time, so it's, uh, or, or a place, or it's a circumstances. Um, in his confessions also, this uh, comment on the Bible, that the Bible was composed in such a way that as beginners mature, its meaning grows with them. I like that. Um, so, you know, you, you ever come across Scripture... Now, you're like, I've read this before many times and I never picked that up. Yeah, that's because the scripture is such that it grows with us. 
that we grow in our knowledge of it as we grow in it, right? It's, that's, um, it was, not, I don't remember who it was that, that said that the scripture is like a river in which an elephant can swim and a sheep can walk. It's, it's, it's shallow enough for the, the beginner Christian, the baby Christian, and the babies even, right? Um, the, the message is simple enough, but it's also deep enough that an elephant can't touch the bottom. That is, you'll never get to the bottom of it. You'll never ex- get to the depths of the scriptures. You'll never outlearn the scriptures and master them in the way like, oh, okay, I got that done. Good, what's next? Um, that its meaning grows with it. It doesn't change its meaning. It doesn't change from the simple, uh, from that the simple truth that it's not a change in meaning. It's just a deeper. There's more there, more to it. Uh, again, that's why we'll repeat the scriptures. That's why the the lectionary every year covers covers the same texts, um, which is a delight. I mean, it's a, a delight for the preacher at least. We get to to study these and. Um, just grow deeper in the memory. Um, from one of his sermons, Augustine writes, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. You know, if you do like what, you know, you've heard about that, like Thomas Jefferson and his, his scrapbook Bible, where he cut out all the sections that he didn't, he didn't want to be pasted, the sections that he thought Jesus really said, into his own little book, in his own scrapbook Bible. Uh, because, you know, like if that's the way you do that, he says, the book, what you're believing in is not the gospel, that you're believing in yourself. You're the, you're the determiner of whether or not this is important to you or not. And, uh, and finally, uh, this quote, and I don't know where it came from, other than that's where, it, that's where we, I came across it or something. Um, that miracles are not contrary to nature, but only contrary to what we know about nature. You know, so can water turn into wine? Well, yes, it can. Usually it goes through the grapevine into the grape through the fermentation process. It does, actually. It just usually takes a lot longer. And it's what we would call a natural process, right? We would, and so we would say that Jesus can put water into the jars and it becomes wine. That's a miracle. And that's contrary to nature. And you say, no, not really. It's just contrary to what we know about nature. Who... Who is the creator of nature? God is. Uh, you know, and we'll look at things and we'll say, well, that's impossible, that can't happen. Um, well, we know this, we know how about, we know there's a lot that we don't know, right? And how God, if, if God wants to make um, someone be able to walk on water, um, how he does that I mean, is, in a sense, it's a natural process in the same way that it's a natural process that makes you float when you swim or sink when you don't breathe. I don't know, or something. Um, depends on... You could do one or the other. Right? Sometimes you could float, sometimes you would sink. Um, but those, we all, all that stuff is a natural process. It's all part of God's creation, and God is the one in charge of that. And so... To say that the miracle is simply God's not like breaking his rules. He made the rules. So, um, also, like just there are things 
We will also say, well, this, those things can't happen because those things have never happened. Um, well, people don't rise from the dead. How do you know people don't rise from the dead? Well, because people don't rise from the dead. I've never seen someone rise from the dead. That just because something hasn't happened doesn't mean that it can't. That's, that logically does not follow. Because as soon as it happens, then it has happened. So if, if Jesus has risen from the dead, we can't say people don't rise from the dead, can we? Because Christ rose from the dead. Um, Perhaps it is just as much of, a, of our nature to rise from the dead. God is the one who made us to do that, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, so you, you see there are a love and a respect for the word of God in Augustine. We uh, move on to, unless someone has a question on St. Augustine. There's, we could spend months on just St. Augustine and his writings and things like that. So that's, that's an introduction for you. Hopefully that gives you a little bit of a, uh, a taste. We'll talk about John Chrysostom. Kind of a funny name. His name um, is sort of a nickname. Uh, John, uh, Chris, name Chrysostom. You have that here, John. Um, and this in Greek is Chris, Chrysostomos. Um, Chrysos is gold. Uh, he's, he's nicknamed Golden Mouth. John the Golden Mouth. And it refers to his, his eloquence in preaching. Uh, and you have an example of this. You, I'm not going to read through this whole, his Paschal homily. You've probably heard it. Um, I didn't, don't think I did it last Easter, but other Easters. Uh, use this at, at Easter matins. Um, and it, it has a, a long tradition in, in a lot of churches to read uh, Chrysostom, his Paschal homily on Easter morning. It's beautiful. Um, he, he has this, um, all these, these questions, is anyone here, are there any devout lovers of God? Let them, and then this invitation, this free invitation to join in the feast. Um, any, who, any, you know, who, who's here? The devout lovers of God? Come on. Any grateful servants? Come on. Weary with fasting? So the Paschal feast at the end of the Lenten fast. You tired of this? <laughs> are, you, are you weary of fasting? Come, receive their wages. Have you toiled from the first hour? This, this next section refers to Matthew 20, the, the parable that Jesus tells of the workers in the vineyard. You remember the guys that get hired at different times of the day? At the end of the day, they all get paid the same. So it says, well, any of you here, any of you uh, weary of fasting, you've toiled from the first hour, you've been doing this all the time, come receive your due reward. Third hour, come on. Sixth hour, don't doubt. You will sustain no loss. Ninth hour, don't hesitate. Come on in. He who arrived at only the eleventh hour, let him not be afraid by reason of his delay. All the Christians, he says, um, you know, those who who've, who've who've been Christians forever, those who have just come come, the Lord is gracious and receives the last, even as the first. Um, let us enter into the joy of the Lord, first and last alike, sober and slothful. Um, those who kept the fast, those who haven't. Uh, Everyone, don't grieve it. Let no one grieve at his poverty. Let no one mourn. Let no one fear death, for the death of our Savior has set us free. And then, and then this uh, just most beautiful section here, uh, where he's described what Jesus has done by dying and rising. Um, He has destroyed it by enduring it. That is death. He destroyed it by enduring it. He destroyed hell when he descended into it. He put it into an uproar, even as it tasted of his flesh. 
So death is trying to, to, to get, get Jesus, right? And it bites him, and it's like, oh, this doesn't taste good. <laughs> you know, like, tried, tried to kill him. Isaiah foretold this, so to hell you have been encountered, troubled by encountering him below. It says hell was in an uproar because it was done away with. It was in an uproar because it was mocked. It was in an uproar because it was destroyed. It is in an uproar because it is annihilated. It is in an uproar because it is now made captive. Death has been swallowed up in victory. That's what St. Paul writes. Hell took a body. I love this. Hell took a body and it discovered God. Tried to get Jesus. Bit down like, ooh, that's God. <laughs> I, I, I've met my match. Um, it took earth and it encountered heaven. It took what it saw and was overcome by what it did not see. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, hell, where is thy victory? Uh, just... Christ is risen. And these are all the implications. Um, life is liberated. Just a beautiful. and yeah. That's his, his Paschal homily. A um, couple of notes on Chrysostom. Chrysostom. He also, and I don't think he grows up as a Christian. He's baptized at... What I've done is 368 or 373. So not nearly the, the we don't have the, the certainty of the time and the circumstances of Chrysostom's uh, coming to faith or his baptism. Uh, he's instructed by, pagan, uh, by a pagan in rhetoric and Greek. Um, in th- 375, though, it tells us that, that he spent time, he was an ascetic, uh, uh, practiced some, uh, like as a hermit. He spent two years, we're told, continually standing. Uh, scarcely eating and committing the Bible to memory. memory. So he spends two, uh, two years, it says it ruined his stomach and his kidneys. Um, um, this. Um, yeah, known for his Paschal homily, his, his preaching especially. Um, also his liturgy, what's called the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, uh, is very common in the Eastern Church. Uh, and what we're talking there is the, the text of the liturgy. So the Eastern Church, like the, you know, the, the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, our, the, the Roman Church, uh, what we call, and so that's the liturgy that we use that comes from us in Rome because Luther was an Augustinian monk of the, in the Western Church, and so the liturgy that had been handed down to them was what we would call the Western Rite, the Western liturgy, things that we would recognize, like the Glory be, Gloria and Excelsis, or the Kyrie, the Glory and Excelsis, the Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Sanctus, Holy, 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 and the O Christ, Lamb of God. That structure, that's the structure of the liturgy that goes way back like a thousand years. That's called the Western Rite. Well, the Eastern Church had a different one. It has some similarities, some things that they have the same, like they also sing Holy, Holy, Holy at a different place in the liturgy. They have readings, and they have, they have their liturgy. And um, the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom is uh, kind of the structure mainly for the, the Orthodox Church. Uh, so um, I'm going to play you a section of a, a musical setting so that like the, the, what John Chrysostom puts together is the, the text of it. But then over time, and this is true in the Western Rite too, composers over the course of history and centuries would repeatedly, regularly put the liturgy to music of all different kinds. 
And so in this, like this, the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, that's kind of a, I think it seems like every Eastern composer does this. So like the Russian composer, Tchaikovsky, has a, a setting of the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. Uh, uh, Rimsky-Korsakov, uh, what we're gonna list them is Rachmaninoff, that this more, one of the more recent ones from 1910, um, his setting, uh, the music for the, the liturgy, like the liturgy is a text itself, but it has always had accompaniment, well, accompaniment meaning song, not necessarily with instruments. So just to give you a, a, a taste of this. This is the, from the very beginning, a prayer opening it up. This is a Kyrie. If you were listening to this in English, you would recognize the words that they were singing. I, one of the, I found another recording in English. That would be like, in peace, let us pray to the Lord for the peace of the whole world, for the church of God, for the community of the Holy That uh, Lord have mercy. Uh, we'll use, um, I, sometimes it's the Kyrie in the divine service, sometimes in, in evening prayer, we'll use elements of of that text that, that is, is very similar. That's what that part was going, but it goes on forever. When Rachmaninoff uh, composed this uh, 1910, it was not accepted by the Orthodox Church. They wouldn't let him use it in church. They said it was too modern for use in church. Whatever the, the elements, the musical elements that he used in this were too, too new. Um, and so the, uh, it'd be interesting uh, if you ever get a chance to see uh, a, a liturgy in a, in a Greek or Russian Orthodox Church. It's something to see. Um, yeah, it's. But um, that's that's uh, from John Chrysostom. So on the back page, the first quote on the top. So this is on your golden. Since it's the golden mouth, I put it on golden rod. Like that. Uh, uh, back page of that. This quote on justification. Basically, he tells the story of someone who says who's caught in the act of adultery, follows crimes, and then was thrown into prison, and then the judgment is going to be passed 
So he's, he's condemned to die for this, for adultery and crimes. But then suppose that just at that moment a letter should come from the emperor, setting him free from any accounting or examination, all those detained in prison. If the prisoner should refuse to take advantage of the pardon, remain obstinate, and choose to be brought to trial to give an account and to undergo punishment, he will not be able thereafter to avail himself of the emperor's favor. But when he made himself accountable to the court, examination and sentence, he chose of his own accord to deprive himself of the imperial gift. So if he's pardoned, but he refuses the pardon, he doesn't get the pardon. <laughs> um, this, has, this is what happened in the case of the Jews. Look at how it is. All human nature was taken into the foulest crimes. All have sins. Sin, says Paul. They were locked, as it were, in a prison by the curse of their transgression of the law. The sentence of the judge was going to be passed against them. A letter from the king came down from heaven. Rather, the king himself came. Without examination, without exacting an account, he set all men free from the chains of their sins. So Jesus comes and he dies for the sins of the world. Then all men who run to Christ are saved by his grace and profit from his grace. But those who wish to find justification from the law will also fall from grace. They will not be able to enjoy the king's loving kindness because they are striving to gain salvation by their own efforts. They will draw down on themselves the curse of the law because by the works of the law, no flesh will find justification. So you want to do it yourself? God will say, okay, fine. You try it yourself. That's what fail. You know, that if, if a person wants to, to gain salvation by the law, then you don't get the pardon. Uh, what does this mean? That he has justified our race not by right actions, not by toils, not by pardon and exchange, but by grace alone. Good reading for Reformation. They were observing Reformation here. Paul too made this clear when he said, but now the justice of God has been manifest apart from law. This is our epistle from our epistle for today, Romans 3. But the justice of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ and not through any labor of suffering. The free declaration of pardon uh, that has come down from the king. All right. Uh, Chrysostom is also quoted in the Lutheran Confessions. This one, um, in the Oxford Confession, on the article on the Mass, um, this is him. Uh, they're, they're pointing out who the Lutherans will admit to the, to the table. Also, the, the, the frequency when they say, we are not abolishing the Mass. Look, we have, this is, um, and this is going back to, the, to John Chrysostom quoting, that he says that the priest stands daily at the, at the altar, inviting some to communion and keeping others back. That the, the priest, the minister, is the one um, re responsible for determining who is to commune and who isn't. Uh, but he, but he points out that the, they're there every day. Uh, if there are communicants, and that's what Luke was kind of pulled from this to say, the, the pastor's there is available. If there are communicants, they have communion. If there are not, he's not going to do it by themselves. You know, um, which the Roman Church was doing, but they said. The priest is there every day. If there's communion, communicants, then he, he would. Um, then on also, uh, this is from the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, the article on Confession. Uh, just, they just quote Chrysostom saying, In the heart, contrition. In the mouth, confession. In the work, entire humility. Also, on the power and primacy of the Pope. So this is, uh, you know, it's quoting John Chrysostom, explaining Matthew 16, which is uh, where Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, which is the passage that the Roman Church uses to, to claim that Peter is the first bishop of Rome, the first 
uh, hope, uh, and that. So, John Chrysostom says, upon this rock, not upon Peter. For he built his church not upon man, but upon the faith of Peter. What was his faith? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So, the Lutheran interpretation of that verse, in contrast to, to Rome, that wasn't new to Luther. Luther didn't like, well, no, I think that's how this passage should be interpreted. Luther could say, well, no, St. John the Chrysostom already, you know, whenever, 400s. Uh, he was already teaching this way. He understood this passage not as you are Peter on this rock, that the rock was Peter in his person, but it is upon the faith of Peter that is confessed with the mouth. You are, Jesus, who do people say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So, um, and then finally, this section is quoted in the formula of Concord on Holy Communion from one of Christus's sermons. Christ himself prepared this table and blesses it, for no man makes the bread and wine set before us into Christ's body and blood, only Christ himself who is crucified for us. The words are spoken by the mouth of the priest, but by God's power and grace, by the word, where Christ says, this is my body, the elements presented are consecrated in the supper. The declaration, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, was spoken only once, but it is ever effective in nature, so that it is fruitful and multiplied. So also this declaration, this is my body and this is my blood, was spoken once. But even to this day, and up to his second coming, it is effective and works so that the, in the supper of the church, his true body and blood are present. So just in the same way that, um, that God once says, be fruitful to Adam and Eve, and he doesn't have to say that to every other man and woman, that his power in his word at creation is the power that is at work in every child who has ever conceived. Because God said, let, let him be fruitful. God's, God's speaking word makes things what it is even centuries later. Right? And God and he says, well, that's the same thing in Jesus' words of institution. What is the word that is effective? It is, it's not the priest's word. It's not the pastor's words. We do re, why do we recite the words of institution. Why do we recite Jesus' words? It is us saying, Jesus' words make it so. And that's why we repeat those words. But it's not as if in the repeating of the pastor's word, pastor, this is not the pastor's words, those are Jesus' words. That's why we are to hear Jesus uh, in those words. Who is, who is singing, take eat, this is my body? There's a reason why Luther, when he wrote that tune, tune put that lower, because Jesus is always, he always, always put, that was, that was a, there's a way of teaching that Jesus is saying this. Whose word is that? Take, eat, this is my body. That's Jesus' words. And we should hear them as Jesus' words. Um, in the same way, uh, in the same way we should hear, I, I, when, I, when I came across this, this is a devotion by Bogier, so he writes this about baptism. He says, it was, of course, by Jesus' command that you were baptized. So when Jesus says, um, you know, go ahead and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, that was his command. Right? So why were you baptized? Because Jesus said it. Because Jesus commanded it. At whose command were you baptized? At Jesus' command. Yes, yes, your parents were involved. 
and, 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 and thought to it, or, or perhaps you know some, you know maybe our own desire. At whose command were you baptized? Whose command was fulfilled when you were baptized? Jesus' command. It was that Jesus commanded you were baptized. He thought of you, and he wanted you to be baptized, and so he said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why do you get to have communion today? Because Jesus said, take me. Who did he say it to? Who did he say it for? It's a delight. Um, and St. John system. One minute. Questions on the years, <laughs> 250 to 500. So we're, we're coming up to, you know, the, the Roman Empire starting to fall apart, you know, by the time, you know, when, when the other side of Augusta died, Rome was starting to, is falling, falling apart. The, the, the assumption was that people would figure that this Christian empire of Rome is going to fall when Rome falls. Uh, does it? We're going to have to wait and see. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a break for I don't know how many weeks we're, we're going to uh, study through First Peter. Spend time, I want to spend some time in the book of the Bible uh, before we come back and, and then we'll, we'll cover the kind of the Middle Ages. It's a long stretch, but there's a lot of stuff that goes on there, a lot of fascinating stuff uh, that you, I think you'll recognize. So let's close then with God's Word is our great heritage. This will also be the closing hymn for church this morning too. So uh, if if we're singing in a cappella, go ahead and sing Amen at the end. We can do that. It's ours. <laughs>